This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change by Alfred W. McCoy. In a tempestuous narrative that sweeps across five continents in seven centuries, eminent historian Alfred McCoy explains how a series of catastrophes, from the devastating Black Death of 1350 through the coming climate crisis of 2050, have produced a relentless succession of rising empires and fading world orders. As Jeremy Scahill puts it, the book's scope is so massive that only a scholar of McCoy's skill could even consider attempting to capture it. McCoy's meticulous understanding of the past and present failures and excesses of empires gives him the rare credibility to offer a detailed, damning picture of the grim realities humankind faces as history transforms into our future. To Govern the Globe, World Orders and Catastrophic Change by Alfred W. McCoy Out now from Haymarket Books Find To Govern the Globe at haymarketbooks.org Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Everyone, it seems, feels pretty bad right now. And while every unhappy person might be unhappy in their own way, the general reason why is not a mystery. Conditions are really bad, and the prospects for them getting better often feel elusive. We're starting off this year of The Dig, which will be our sixth full year in operation, with an interview attempting to get to the bottom of the question of what the hell is going on and what might happen next, including some hopeful thoughts about what might move us out of this morass. Today, I'm interviewing returning champions Aziz Rana, Nikhil Paul Singh, and Wendy Brown, and we cover a lot of ground, indeed. If you're a regular listener, you know that we depend on listener support to make this podcast possible. If you're a regular listener, you may also just fast forward through this part of my introduction. If that's you, please stop for a second and listen and think about why you turn to the dig every week for ruthless criticism and analysis of all that exists. If the dig is important to you, please make a contribution at patreon.com slash the dig. Even a dollar is fine. A mere dollar a month will get you access to our weekly email newsletter, which digs um, deeper into every episode of the show. It is really good, and you should read it. $10 a month or more, and we'll send you a book or books in the mail, a dig coffee mug, or a dig tote bag. Most importantly, though, contribute because those contributions are what make the dig possible and what makes it possible for us to post every episode with no paywall so that people who can't afford to contribute can listen too. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. The link is also right there in the show notes. Please support the dig. Okay, here's Aziz Rana, Nikhil Paul Singh, and Wendy Brown. Aziz Rana is a law professor at Cornell and the author of the book, The Two Faces of American Freedom. His current book manuscript explores the rise of constitutional veneration in the 20th century. Nikhil Paul Singh is professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and faculty director of NYU's prison education program. 
His most recent book is Race in America's Long War. Wendy Brown is a professor in the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. Her most recent book is In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. She has just finished Knowledge and Politics in Nihilistic Times, Thinking with Max Weber, which should be out in about a year. Aziz Rana, Nikhil Paul Singh, and Wendy Brown. Welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, great to see you again. We're obviously facing a right-wing assault on American institutions, but that right-wing assault, of course, is not taking place in a vacuum. It's drawing on and taking advantage of broader frustration, exhaustion, alienation with the political and economic status quo. And yet, here we are, and liberals find themselves utterly unable to respond effectively, liberals and the left. What sort of crisis has this been? Because it feels like things keep getting weirder and worse, whether we date the start of this all to the 70s, to 2008, or to 2016, or to the beginning of the pandemic, but it never seems to reach a breaking point. So, you know, I think the, the biggest feature of the crisis, in my view, is that the U.S. is experiencing what amounts to a crisis in its institutions of representative government. And I think it's actually really useful to highlight the differences basically between Biden coming into office in January 2021 and Obama coming into office in 2009. I think in 2009, you could you could rightly argue that the folks around Obama believed that you can come up with some kind of consensus framework that would incorporate Republicans. This would require not pushing too hard on certain assumptions about the nature of economic policy, including respect for market dictates, and that a kind of bipartisan framework that was a holdover from Clintonism ended up facing a very different kind of Republican Party and political world than they expected. I don't think that's really the story of the the spring of 2021. I think the story is that the Democratic Party, including the, the liberal leadership, realized that you can't do business with a party that's committed to overturning democracy. And that a lot of the assumptions about market politics had been thrown out the window. And so that there's a commitment to really go big in a way that was, in fact, reconstructive. But the problem has been that even with that set of assumptions, it's come up against the nature of the political system and the fact that the political system makes it virtually impossible to implement large scale social policies. And in fracturing the possibility of engaging in meaningful or transformative change, it facilitates this current moment where you have uh, a party leadership that might actually want to pursue various kinds of moves, but that is essentially systematically compromised by federalism, the structure of the Senate, um, state representation, and on and on and on in ways that end up kind of facilitating the rightward attacks on democracy itself. I would add to what Aziz said that if what you're fishing for, Dan, is what's making this moment so, as you put it, weird and crisis-ridden, but not quite turning into a full-on crisis in the streets, clearly the climate crisis has come into collective consciousness and collective existence in a way that it hasn't in prior decades. 
We are also, of course, living with the most rickety economic, both financial and other economic dimensions of the system that we ever have with um, a rollicking stock market completely untethered from what mainstream economists call economic fundamentals, while the homeless crisis in the streets of American cities just explodes. But there's something else. And then, of course, a completely hijacked Supreme Court. And it's interesting that as Aziz um, ticked off the institutions that have now become uh, so deeply politicized and and hijacked that they no longer function even, even in an approximation to what they were designed to function to do. Uh, and the Supreme Court now has to be you know, put at the top of that list. But I think there's something else, which is that I, I would just add to what Aziz said, that, that this attack on basic institutions of representative democracy started in the 80s and the 90s. And it's, you know, I mean, you could say the Gingrich contract with America was, was the shot over the bow. And the moment when constitutional hardball and gerrymandering and so forth got ratcheted up so dramatically that it was very clear that the GOP and a developing right-wing social base had completely lost interest in even a whisper of what we could call constitutional, bourgeois, representative democracy, and instead was playing to win and would play to win not only in spite of democracy, but against it, if we just treat democracy for a moment as 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 that which, you know, representative institutions or representative democracy claims it to be. And I, you know, I agree with you that when Obama came to power, the liberal left and center imagined that things could be done. But I think it's really important to see that even then that center and that that uh, liberal coalition was totally asleep at the wheel, shocked by how hard it was to get Obamacare through and how meager it was when it got through, playing to the center, triangulating in the same way that Clinton did on foreign policy, Guantanamo, deportations of migrants, and quiescent in general about racist economic and social policy in America, imagining that that would somehow uh, bring the right in, and it had no interest. So I agree with you that that was the assumption, but it was a bad assumption. It was a terrible assumption, and it has a lot to do with how we've come to this pass. Nikhil? Yeah, I think these are great answers. And I think we'll be wrestling throughout this interview with the relationship between the kind of continuous and the sort of ruptural story. You know, are we in a rupture from neoliberalism? Are we in a rupture from democratic governance? Are we in a rupture from what we've come to expect as the kind of norms of bipartisanship over a long period of time? Or have we been in a kind of steady movement of kind of the erosion of these things, right? Um, to, uh, to, to go back to Dan's initial question, where we're just waiting for the breaking point. Um, and we're not quite sure when the breaking point's going to come. I, I, I oscillate back and forth between these different kinds of characterizations. Um, but the one thing I would circle back to in, in what, what Wendy just said is, what is the right playing for? That's always one of the questions that, that sort of baffles me. 
it seems to me that since Clinton, we have a we have a kind of uh, role that the Democratic Leadership Council reconstituted Democratic Party plays, which is regime stabilization. You know, they kind of play the role of kind of coming in and, and cleaning up what happened before the sort of excesses, um, some of the injustices, some of the inequalities and the instabilities in the name of progress, but a progress that is essentially um, kind of um, attached to the, the status quo that existed before. In some ways, you could say that's the relationship of Clintonism to Reaganism, and you could perhaps say that's the relationship of Obama to Bush. Um, whereas both the Reagan and the Bush, W. Bush regimes were ambitious kind of hegemony-seeking projects, um, in, in a sense. Or all of these are hegemony-seeking projects in certain ways, but the the Reagan project and the W Bush project are are really a, attempting to kind of kind of rupture what existed before rather than to stabilize uh, something that pre-exists them. Um, so we've seen this kind of pattern happen, but now we seem to have broken from this pattern in in the current moment because Trump seemingly represented uh, a different kind of rupture that we couldn't clearly understand in terms of what had happened before. And now Biden, who, who clearly is a, a, a stabilizing figure, um, is also kind of underpinned by these greater ambitions, as, as he's put it, these ambitions to finally actually turn the page on neoliberalism, to actually finally imagine what it would be like to move forward and away from the kind of uh, th- this oscillation and this kind of uh, baton handing that has kind of led us down this sort of sort of terrible road of increasing precarity, of the erosion of our democratic institutions, of the, of the increasing mistrust within civic life, and of course, with this terrible foreign policy that we've been saddled with for uh, more than two decades, and Biden did does seem in some ways to be poised on these two questions on 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 this you know and and unable himself to sort of to sort of move it forward right so so this is this kind of moment of stuckness right that that trump Trump really didn't have a project that was clearly one that augured a new kind of hegemonic direction for the polity. These were gambits that were tried before, right? But but Trump didn't even really have a serious gambit. In some ways, what Trump exposed was the American state as something that's now just kind of a spoil system. But but Biden does seem to have something more ambitious. But then the the ambition is just kind of being sapped from it. So we're 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 a year in, and we just all feel like, well, this isn't even going to amount to anything at this point, and we're just going to be back in the same soup after the midterms, and perhaps in twenty twenty four, with with an election where we don't even know if Biden would would run again, so uh, or if Trump will run again, but maybe they both will run. So it's it's just a very strange time, and and I I too experience it as as very disorienting, and I struggle to find the through line that, that that makes the most sense to me. Yeah, in terms of that sense of stuckness, Corey Robin wrote recently, quote, no president since Ronald Reagan has achieved a more ambitious domestic legislative agenda in his first year than Joe Biden, with a razor-thin congressional majority false far smaller than that of Barack Obama. President Biden has delivered two enormous spending bills with another, the Build Back Better Act, likely on its way. 
maybe. Elements of these bills will have a lasting effect on the economy into the next decade. They also push the country to the left. The real cause of the unease about Mr. Biden lies elsewhere. There is a sense that however large his spending bills may be, they come nowhere near to solving the problems they are meant to address. There is also a sense that however much in control of the federal government progressives may be, the right is still calling the shots. There's a sense of stuckness, in other words, that no amount of social spending or policy innovation can seem to dislodge. And I think this is really important, and I was not exactly expecting it, given how I viewed the presidential primary last year. But Biden did come out swinging on big ticket economic, social and climate legislation far beyond what we could have ever imagined Obama proposing. But it's it's now stalled. And even if it wasn't stalled, the crises and I think really, as Wendy was mentioning earlier, particularly the climate crisis are just an entirely greater order of magnitude than American liberals are prepared to take on and way larger than what liberals can take on in the face of the Republican advantage accorded by our counter-majoritarian institutions. So what do you all make of this sense of stuckness? Because I think it's clear to everyone, and it's very clear to me in terms of the organizing work that I do, that we're in a moment of serious demobilization on the left right now after last year's Bernie campaign and then the mass movement against racist police violence that followed. Even as right-wing reaction grows more extreme, more fervent, more militant all the time. You know, one thing we have to remember about social spending, and if we're just going to call it this, uh, the construction of a new social welfare state, is that the effects are not felt instantly. (laughs) They move in a different temporality than the effects of inflation, the pandemic, climate crisis, extreme weather events, attacks on abortion, all of those are in the news every day. And to remember that Biden came into office and immediately put through one of the most extraordinarily progressive stimulus packages in response to the pandemic is almost impossible. It's almost impossible to remember that within months of being in office, not only were there big checks in people's pockets, there was also an infusion of funds to daycares and preschools and schools and cities, and that the Build Back Better thing was already in play through the first stimulus package. But that fell out of the news in five seconds, and the effects of that are uh, don't work politically, to mobilize people or to demobilize people, to anger people or to energize people. And I think we on the left, I'm going to interpolate us all, obviously, um, need to take the measure of that, that the same thing would have happened to Bernie, that, that bringing in the big agenda for the big transformation, as you just described it through Corey Robbins' beautiful piece, is not going to necessarily be mobilizing. We have to work at a different level, but also at a different level than something I assume we'll talk about a little later in the program, which is not simply reacting to every bit of bait that the right throws at us. So on the one hand, we have to get smart on the left about the temporalities of progressive programs versus, uh, we could just call it, uh, you know, the the 
daily news or the minute-by-minute news. And on the other hand, we have to get smart about a reactiveness to a whole series of things that the right has become really good at baiting the left and the liberals with and that we tend to get on the hook with. And um, almost nobody in the U.S. other than our little left bubble is genuinely moved by or mobilized by. And, you know, as I say, I'm sure we'll talk about those things down the road. Yeah, I mean, consistent with this, something that I'd just add is I also uh, worry that sometimes the, the, the focus on left demobilization might be overstated in the sense that, you know, if you just look at midterm elections in the context of parties out of power, generally the party out of power does well. So this would be the story of the Republicans in 94, Democrats in 2006 and 2018, Republicans in 2010. So it's not that surprising that left and liberal energy has declined after a really hard fought and incredibly you know, stressful, anxiety inducing 2020 election. And at the same time, if you take a broad look at the last year plus, it has still been a year of fairly remarkable organizing on the part of left and liberal activism. I mean, so yes, we're defining this as this year, but 2020 with the the racial justice protests, you know, amounted to the largest multiracial protest that this country maybe has ever seen. The last few years, including this year, has seen intensive forms of strike activism. I think the issue in some ways is, yes, there's clearly demobilization and exhaustion, but it's in a way, the disconnect between the kind of energy that it feels like the left can bring to bear and what seem to be these Herculean challenges and the fear that there's a kind of impending disaster. In other words, there's a sense that consistent with the dysfunctions of our political system that gives, you know, what some social scientists say, a plus seven in the House because of gerrymandering to the Republican Party, a plus four in the Electoral College, that you're going to see a situation in 2022 where Republicans take control of Congress. And so that basically stalls any possibility of meaningful legislation. And then there's this potential impending disaster of 2024, where given the nature of the contemporary Republican Party, that the party moves further and further towards solidifying minority rule, perhaps even subverting a presidential election. And as Wendy said, you have the nature of the Supreme Court. So it sort of feels like there's a kind of energy that's required of the left under these circumstances to actually overcome the potential dangers. And that energy is actually significantly more in a way than would be reasonably expected in ordinary political circumstances, but we're not living in ordinary political times. And so the lack of it feels like profound demobilization. And in terms of 2024, I think some of this ambient dread can be attributed to this deepening sense that it's either an extremely old Biden running for re-election or Pete and or Kamala potentially losing to Trump, because I don't think we have another Bernie waiting in the wings. We don't have another Biden even waiting in the wings. I mean, hilariously, I think that The Hill had a thing yesterday about how Hillary was the best option for 2024, which was just, (laughs) you know, I mean, let's just leave that without without comment at this point. And I don't necessarily want to get into the the gaming of 2024. I do agree uh, 100% with what both Aziz and Wendy just said. I think we know there's an enormous constituency for 
progressive, if not a socialist politics in the United States that has emerged really in the last 10 years. And I think to even imagine that we could say there's a constituency for socialist politics in the United States would, would not have been thinkable in, in my, you know, in my lifetime. So um, I think that that, that that is clear. I think that it's hard to know what will activate people. You know, I think I think that the, the struggle is how you connect or how we connect the, the 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 episodic horizontalism of street politics with electoral politics or with um, institutional politics. You know, and I think there that this may be something we get into more in the discussion, which is really what we mean by the left and how we think of the shape of the left in this moment, but. Clearly, what happened in 2016 was a desire to do that with the Bernie campaign uh, and the Corbyn campaign in in Britain, similarly, uh, where some of the elements of a connective tissue, really, or an ecosystem, a left ecosystem that connected electoral politics with um, struggles within the digital realm with street politics, um, and also that tried to begin to once again think more constructively about how class or economic justice and the kind of issues that have been put forth through uh, different social movements over the past 30 years around race and gender justice might be, might meet up again, you know, and I think that's a conversation that and a, a set of questions that many of us have been thinking about for a long, long time. I don't think those suddenly just got swept off the table. You know, I, I certainly see it with the students that I teach and the, 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 the high school kids that I encounter through, through having a high school age child. These are, these are the things that are on their mind, right? Um, they live out generation, they live out their generation with a sense of, of, of economic precarity, uh, and they also are very preoccupied with questions of diversity, representation, and a politics of recognition, sometimes problematically, uh, but sometimes in ways that can be actually turned toward a broader politics, right? Um, and I, and I, I, I think that's, that's a very, very hopeful thing right now. Um, and I don't think that American elites in general aren't paying attention to this. I mean, the George Floyd rebellion was a tremendously uh, shocking thing, I think, to the American ruling class broadly conceived. That many people mobilized in the streets uh, for such a duration across so much of the country around an issue of contesting and opposing despotic power, uh, the despotic power of the police. I don't think that that the constituency for that politics suddenly disappeared. You know, it's there. But but then we're blocked in so many ways in thinking about how we move that terrain of struggle into uh, durable kinds of reforms that actually do something for people that meet them in their basic needs and in their aspirations for a better society in material terms, but also a better world, you know, in terms of the sort of big questions that are on the table for this generation and for ours. Climate change, the pandemic, the broad sort of uh, issues of sort of what makes life meaningful and worth living. And 
And I do think these questions are the questions that people are asking. And I think that the left has more answers to those questions and more promising visions of a future, obviously. Uh, but I think we're, you know, we're still in the soup, right? We're, and, we're, and we're facing some very unfavorable short-term circumstances, near-term circumstances, I think right now uh, with the, the coming kind of political cycle. Could I just add two small things that that Nikhil's they're really just footnotes to Nikhil's meditation here. One is that I think that that in the last seventy five years in the U.S., ever since the decline of any serious left party, we on the left are just terrible at thinking the relation between electoral politics and street politics, whereas people around much of the rest of the world have been dealing with that negotiation and mediation at close range, theorizing it, thinking it, um, um, arguing about it, and and succeeding through it, um, as we see in certain uh, spots of Latin America today. We need to we need to figure out what resources will help educate us as a as a left in this domain. But at the same time, it's the moment of such crisis for bourgeois democratic institutions, that we need to factor that in as well. And I feel like it's almost too much, but it's but but we don't have a, a choice to turn away. We need to both do some hard work in thinking through and and orienting ourselves toward the simultaneity of street politics and electoral politics without getting exasperated or exhausted with either one. And at the same time, we need to reckon with the serious crisis introduced into our institutions by the right, which has grown extremely savvy about dismantling even a modicum of democratic representativeness in all of our major institutions. And we need to see this not just at the federal level, but at the local level. It's happening in school boards, it's happening in police forces, it's happening in city councils, as well as the Supreme Court and gerrymandered congressional districts. So that's a tall agenda, but I think that is part of the agenda for the left in coming decades, even as we face the giant existential crisis of climate change as something that seems almost beyond the capacity of representative institutions and even democratic socialist institutions. So it's big. It's it's overwhelming. And I think that's partly why we're also so disoriented. I'm sorry, that was more than a footnote. No, I think you're exactly right that it's a question of not just looking at what's happening in Congress or the White House, but thinking about the relationship between what's happening there and what's happening throughout the entire country. And Corey Robbins' ultimate answer to the question that he poses in, in his essay as to how to deal with the sense of stuckness is that it's not going to come from the realm of, of high politics. It's got to be some sort of independent mass movement or movements that unstick us. And the problem, of course, is that you can't just like call or will or wish those into being. But one bright spot here, and I think probably the brightest spot, is the recent labor militancy we've been seeing. We've had John Deere, IATSE, Kellogg, Columbia and Harvard grad students striking a spirited if failed attempt to organize Amazon, an Amazon warehouse in Alabama, and now most recently, a militant takeover of the Teamsters Union with a pledge to take on UPS, that's the largest private sector contract in the country, and the first corporate-owned Starbucks store. That's one a union, which has now sparked Starbucks workers organizing all over the country. It's still 
a far cry from 1934 and even from the 1970s. But it is something, and it's something that could get very bigger as as the political economics situation gets <laughs> continues to get get weirder and and more difficult. It's important to remember that it's one thing to mobilize the left and it's another thing to organize those who have not yet been organized. And we need to get better at that as well. And a lot of that happens locally. It happens by showing up to school board meetings. It happens, I mean, it doesn't just happen in the old fashioned door-to-door knocking, you know, acorn style. It and and it, it happens through organizing and uh, showing up at local political and and institutions and provisioning in neighborhoods and that sort of thing. And it's uh, work, you know, Dan, I remember still a tweet that you put out during uh, the run-up to 2020, uh, the election, where you, I, I, I won't get this right, but you basically said, Yes, ma'am, I understand that you need your gutters fixed, and I understand that it's just an outrage that that pothole down the street hasn't been um, dealt with yet, but won't you please register to vote? And it was really (laughs) about the irony of of doing this kind of organizing that involves encounters with people's often not very progressive views, not very progressive orientations, but immediate needs. And um, I'm afraid the left needs to remember how to do that kind of organizing and figure out how to do it in the digital age. Yeah. And not necessarily reactionary views, sometimes just not politically coherent at all views. Exactly. Aziz, Nikhil? Yes. I mean, I, I, I agree that I'm, I'm most hopeful, honestly, about labor organizing. And a lot of it has to do with just the basic question of power building, that I think the thing that the right has been very effective at over the last few decades is really investing in expanding the power of its basic institutional bases and then systematically hollowing out the power of those contesting bases. And if you were to think about, maybe we'll get into a little bit later on, you know, what's what's the right doing? If you're, if you're really to think about like the overarching policy agenda of the right, you know, of Mitch McConnell, um, across a bunch of different institutions, what it's what the focus is is how do we actually entrench our power and limit the power of folks that might contest us? And you know, the simple truth is that when we think about the left generally, the most sustained vehicle for left organizing and then also you know policy implementation has been the labor movement and labor unions. And it's not a surprise that the right systematically over the last half century, has worked to essentially defeat labor organizing and to reduce the number of unionized workers in the country down to what it is right now, you know, with something like 10%. And so rebuilding, strengthening the actual institutional capacity of the labor movement, I think is absolutely essential. It's a long-term project, but it also has very clear short-term policy connections that link organizing to electoral politics, like, for example, things such as the PRO Act. And I think one of the problems here, frankly, is that the Democratic Party simply doesn't operate the way the modern Republican Party does. We can talk about why, which is the Democratic Party has not put an emphasis on implementing legislation like the PRO Act. Even though it passed through Congress, it's seen as dead on arrival in the Senate. It hasn't been a focus of the Biden administration. This would uh, affect right to work laws at the state level, it would strengthen, you know, collective bargaining rights, it would uh, produce various kinds of constraints in the capacity of employers to 
threaten or go after uh, unionizing workers. And I think the reason is that the Democratic Party is frankly split on the extent to which it's actually committed to confronting the realities of neoliberalism. To the extent that the Democratic Party is split, it's not necessarily a house for you know, focusing on like, well, what would be the institutional mechanisms that would that would produce the potential for genuinely transformative politics? So, you know, I, I think what that suggests is a hopefulness and enthusiasm around labor organizing, but a recognition that I think one of the central focuses of left politics has to be creating the institutional bases that can actually expand the relevant power of left ideas. And that union organizing is perhaps still the central institutional base as it's been for a century. Nikhil? I, I agree with that. I, I'm concerned, though, that we've been having the conversation about rebuilding the labor movement, you know, since the 1990s and kind of waiting for organized labor um, or the reorganization of labor. And so I do not at all dispute that it is a node in the struggle and that the rebalancing or the rejiggering of the imbalance uh, in the power of capital and labor um, in the United States and elsewhere is a crucial piece of what has to happen. But I, I, I'm still drawn back to the way in which the many of the most vibrant or at least the most recently vibrant social movement really are, are actually about what we might think of as, um, you know, a kind of a pro a, a pro democracy or anti despotism renovation of American society related to the carceral state, which is one of the great bipartisan creations of the neoliberal order, uh, the national security state, which is another major bipartisan creation that is maintained routinely despite uh, other things having trouble going through. So. I do think that the social base of organized labor is now and probably will remain a sectoral one. And so the challenge is, is really going to be how do we assemble some kind of larger political force, some kind of larger political articulation of the kind of the kind of um, the sort of diverse or, or range of um, of people who are now essentially um, languishing, you know, under the terms of this um, this this society's organization of governance um, and economy, I know that's not helping really to make the problem smaller, you know, or more manageable, but it does kind of I think illustrate some of the ways. And of course, I think the left has to be a big you know, a big tent. But if you sort of see what happened with, with Corbynism in Britain, you know, it kind of, it kind of sort of tried to hold together the, the, the momentum, right, of the social movements and of the kind of the labor movement, but kind of then defaulted a little bit um, to, the, to the labor movement in, in certain ways as the sort of main figures that would kind of ad advise the government. And, and you know, that default also sort of highlighted a kind of fracture, Right. Which is who who is the who is within the kind of the kind of membership of the polity that we imagine trying to reconstruct here or not documented to work, explicitly prevented from working because of felony convictions and other things. 
And so in the context, I think, of reimagining the labor movement, those kinds of questions would have to be also very central. Um, and, and, and maybe they can be, and maybe un it's under the auspices of the labor movement that we revision this, this question of membership and social citizenship. But I think that um, the, there, there are going to be different articulations of that question, um, and they're not all going to run through labor, I guess, is what I would say. I would agree they're not all going to run through, through labor, but I'm not sure we're talking about different groups of people in all cases. Like, were the people in the streets last summer not the same people who are, today are driving UPS trucks or working at an Amazon warehouse or Starbucks? We don't really know the answer to that, do we? I mean, I, I, I think the answer really matters. And, and I, I, I think what Nikhil is, is absolutely right about is, of course, we're all excited about what's happened to labor over the last several years. Uh, we just had a huge victory for our lecturers in the UC system. I mean, it was just, it's the best contract that they've ever had. And we've been fighting for it for years. And suddenly it became possible this year for a variety of reasons. So labor uh, all over the place is, I think, having these kinds of breakthroughs. And at the same time, we have so much labor that is not organizable, not only not organized, but not organizable because it's uh, contract and and gig, uh, because it's undocumented or, I mean, some, some of the undocumented, of course, are very organizable through the UFW and elsewhere, but... Um, or taking place within I, the family. I, yes, <laughs> I was getting there. And the other thing I think we have to remember is that not only are the social mobilizations on the left oriented to other issues... So are the social mobilizations on the right. And we need to bring that into our conversation that, that um, what has happened around critical race theory and more generally white supremacy, um, you know, that has been seeded by the GOP for 40 years. It is finally bearing enormous amounts of fruit. And I think we need to recognize that you can simultaneously organize somebody into a labor union and sustain deeply racist identification with right-wing politics. Uh, so labor is not going to be our salvation in that respect either. Which is not to say that we're not all for it. Of course, as, as Nikhil said, it's got to be part of, of, of the picture. But I, th I going back to it in a kind of more, it's bigger. We, we can't exaggerate what it's going to do for us. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I definitely agree with both Nikhil and Wendy. I suppose um, the thing that I'm sort of thinking about here is that there's clearly a crisis in, of representative institutions and a need for a broad kind of democracy project. And yet I think there's a simple fact, which is, you know, democracy reforms that are read as procedural, that are not grounded in material experience, do not have a, you know, a real history of, of success on their own, own terms. So, I mean, the closest we have to success would be the mid-1960s, where you, you know, you contested the racial and white authoritarianism across large swaths of the country through the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. But that was also a very specific and contingent historical moment, you know, tied to the Cold War, tied to the general depolarization of the political parties, that there was elite national white interest in, in altering the terms of, of voting in the country in a way that, you know, really, we haven't seen 
before that or afterwards. Um, if you go back to the first reconstruction, the efforts of the first reconstruction had frankly, you know, minority support within white society and, you know, faltered on the fact that there wasn't sustained white support for transformative changes when it comes to questions of democracy. And then really the other, I think, success of democracy promotion reforms, you could argue was during the New Deal and was promoted by labor in the context specifically of the Supreme Court's systematic opposition to popular economic legislation, where, you know, the labor movement here, the CIO, had like a, a massive pack, the uh, Labor Nonpartisan League, that really pressed in the, the 36 election for court reform, for things like court packing, which you could read as a democracy agenda, and brought people out on those issues, specifically because of the ways it was tied to material interests. Now, I don't know if that can be replicated in the present, but I think one of the problems we're having right now, and the reason why things like all of the various kinds of democracy reform legislation has basically been backburnered is because politicians look at a two-year cycle in the Democratic Party and don't see these as significant issues to be able to get voters out, and that there's a sense that the democracy question is really abstract. And it strikes me that the only way successfully to alter that is to somehow link democracy to material conditions. And to make that claim, I think you're probably going to need institutional bases that speak to people's everyday material lives. And so that's one of the reasons why I think that labor is a significant node, um, because labor strikes me as kind of essential to being able to make that connection, to be able to articulate democracy as not just a question about process, but of like the, the substantive improvements that people can actually experience in the ways in which meaningfully um, uh, the neoliberal, neoliberal order can be c- confronted. I would tend to afford labor a more privileged role, not because economic justice is like more important than racial justice at all. I just don't think racial justice struggles can succeed without being grounded in economic justice. So in terms of the example you put forward, Wendy, certainly organizing a white worker who is racist into a union will not automatically lead them to being not racist. But I think that organizing that person into a union probably stands a much better chance of changing that person's mind, but through materially grounded processes than than arguing with that person or saying your views are reprehensible to me. Not that I'm not saying that's what your alternative approach would be, but I don't I don't know what other sort of organizations or institutional vehicles. I mean labor is a totally battered and decimated one, but I don't know what other sort of institutional or organizational vehicles otherwise are on offer. Can I add just one thing to this, which is I also think it's really significant that we've had the decline of, of what amounts to class consciousness. So I think one of the things that labor institutions do, and that I think the Sanders campaign, for example, in 2016 and 2020 did really powerfully, was to emphasize the idea that we have solidaristic attachments on grounds of, of shared class or shared worker position. Because with the decline of that, I think what it does is it produces a context where, you know, one of the things that we have seen that, that Trump and the right have played on very effectively is that there are not very many other bases by which to assert group solidarity. And the form of group solidarity that ends up getting articulated is racial. So it's like the thing that that you might have in common is a shared kind of whiteness or a particular kind of cultural background. And talking instead about 
shared economic position, I think, provides other ways of making claims about either the injustice one might experience or what might connect you to other people. I mean, again, it's not not necessarily a, a foolproof against against racism, but it's um, the you know I'd say that the lack of that solidaristic ground has been one of the real da- damaging effects of politics over the last half century in the U.S. I just have two things to say here. One, I think we need to really reckon with the history of labor in the U.S., which was has been deeply racist and sexist. And even when mobilized for what we would historically have called highly progressive socialist communist ends, that doesn't mean that is inherent in labor organizing. I just don't understand why Dan and Aziz are offering it as that which offers a bridge over these other social stratifications or through them or transforms them. And secondly, I think what we disagree about, uh, yes, of course, neoliberalism radically disintegrated class consciousness and concrete institutions for labor and laws protecting labor. And we all know that story, so we won't rehearse it here. Certainly Occupy and the social movements and the political organizing that came out of it and the Bernie campaign pushed back on that to some degree. But it seems to me that the question of whether Trump supporters and the mobilization of the right was simply possible because we didn't have adequate labor consciousness as opposed to occurring as a response to a rapidly shrinking set of perceived privileges and entitlements for white Christian Americans, that's where I think our argument is right now. Because I don't think that organizing people at the level of their economic solidarity, let alone in a potentially post-work society, uh, speaks to the extent to which the rights anointing of wounded masculinity and wounded whiteness uh, has been terrifically successful, apart from the question of whether somebody understands themselves to be working class or poor. Nikhil? Um, yeah, I'm going to take this in a slightly different register, um, but similarly, I think, um, registering maybe some differences in the conversation. And the reason I talked about thinking about labor as a kind of sectoral, as part of a kind of a multi-sectoral project rather than the one through which the sort of everything else gets organized. You know, I, I do think that um, that an anti-despotism agenda can begin with, the, with, you know, what Elizabeth Anderson calls private government, you know, the sort of the corporation as this realm where or the employer is this realm where you, you know, you, you don't get to control your own body. You know, you don't get to decide when you go to the bathroom. Uh, you certainly don't get paid enough. Uh, you don't get good health benefits. You're subject to daily indignities. I think people who work understand these things. And I think these aspects of labor 
I think are, are activate a whole range of other sort of political questions that are connected broadly to the way in which I think we suffer under a a, a very hostile and anti-democratic kind of regime in the United States. And again, I think there are multiple vectors for that, whether we're talking about the police, whether we're talking about the counter-majoritarian institutions of electoral politics, uh, whether we're talking about cor- the way corporations operate. You know, and, and, and so I, I do think that um, that labor has a, has a role to play, for sure. Um, and I think in addition to, to Wendy's points about the kind of historic, say, racism and sex, racist and sexist in, interpolations of, 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 of class, of class politics, I mean, I would really add the nationalist interpolation as the one that we have to really worry about going forward. Um, and of course, we have to recognize that it's the Republican Party that's now saying they're the party of the working class, um, in some ways more convincingly than the Democratic Party which as kind of an avowedly cross-class coalition that brings together the kind of kind of the sort of progressive wealthy suburbanites and the and the the urban poor right whereas the 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 imagination of class that the republican party taps into is that is that old producerist idea of the kind of self-sufficient you know white worker but it could also be a brown worker or a black worker um often a male, head of household, someone who kind of lives by their own efforts, uh, doesn't ask for government handouts, is, you know, is supported by the government in their competition with, you know, alien and foreign uh, competition that would undercut their wages. And I think that's become a very powerful framework for right-wing organizing in the current moment. Uh, one that's overlaid with a story of education, educational polarization, of course, because the argument of, is also about specifically manual workers and specifically a certain kind of manufacturing or, or return to a manufacturing uh, kind of work. So, so I think that we're we're we have a lot of work to do on the in 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 the arenas of class consciousness if we're going to talk about a resurgent class consciousness being uh, tied to a kind of progressive democratic struggle going forward, right? Because I think class consciousness can have these other uh, kinds of iterations. Um, and, and so we're, 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 we're poised on that question right now, I think in some really, some really important ways. You know, and I think it does relate to this problem of educational polarization, which I, I expect we will talk about. And, and, and also what Wendy called post-work, because in some ways, the, the part of the producerist imaginary that is now, uh, I think, a fodder to the right, you know, basically sort of says that, you know, all of us who, who, are, who are educated and have gotten sort of kind of ill-gotten access to sort of certain kinds of assets, right, whereas uh, are, are sort of also the agents of a kind of dispossession, right? Um, and... And, and and that's a scary politics, obviously. I mean, that's that's really what you're talking about. You know, something called fascist politics, or or uh, or something that harkens back to that those traditions of of kind of workerist politics. 
that um, that are you know I think resurgent or emergent at least in in uh, in the current moment. So these would just be ways I would I would filter into the conversation without taking a strong kind of note of as strong a note of disagreement with the the, the importance of labor politics as a as a as a as a realm that we should be paying attention to. I actually don't think that maybe there's as much disagreement as um, perhaps it seems because you know I. I completely agree about the profound limitations of the traditional labor movement and the story of labor's complicity with sexism, racism, as well as, as Nikhil noted, the, the rise of the Cold War state and like the commitment of American labor to essentially suppress global labor movements. Um, so that, you know, my own politics is a brand of left internationalism and that has hardly been a vehicle through which, you know, uh, ideas are expressed in the traditional labor movement. I think what I was really thinking about was that just practically speaking in terms of political organizing in the present, that it strikes me that there are three really clear institutions of left liberal politics. One is the Democratic Party. One is the universities. Hence, sort of the conversation that Nikhil was introducing about educational polarization. And the third are labor unions. So, and now there are other spaces, I think, for institution building that we've seen develop that I'm personally excited about. Things like the DSA, the Working Families Party, the, in terms of electoral politics, the movement for Black Lives and the mass kind of organizing we see there. But these are still more incipient and partial. And of the three that I just articulated, the Democratic Party, the universities and unions, it strikes me that as an actual mechanism for articulating left demands in a way that can reach a multiracial uh, constituency, that unions are probably more successful than either the Democratic Party, given the current composition and nature of it, or universities, given the role that universities play in naturalizing various forms of economic inequality. Um, so all three exist as institutional spaces, but it, it seems that one of them is especially under threat, and that's the, the union base. And so that's the reason why I was emphasizing the importance of strengthening it. I would agree that we perhaps don't disagree so much on problems with the traditional labor movement and that indeed the Trumpist right is trying to resurrect this producerist nostalgia for a reactionary white Fordist family wage labor movement of the Cold War era, though very notably minus the labor movement material part of it, just the imaginary. And But who are we talking about, us here, when we're talking about the American working class, particularly in those areas where we're seeing the most militancy right now, talking about Amazon, Starbucks, teachers, nurses. These are workplaces that are disproportionately women, people of color, immigrants. And it's a multiracial working class. And prior to this recent wave of militancy in the in prior to the pandemic, where we were seeing the most militancy was precisely the social reproductive sectors of the care economy, nurses and teachers. And the reason teachers in particular were so effective is because we saw left-wing takeovers of unions in LA, Chicago, well, Chicago first, in LA and other places, where they embraced a brand of social unionism, which was particularly about you know fighting for not only teachers' narrow material benefits, but against racism, against for students and parents as a whole. So I wonder if there has to be a trade-off here between, like, are we talking about non-labor social movements or social movement or, or, or labor social movements 
when we look at the teacher's experience over the last decade in particular and maybe see the ability to break down the barriers between them. I'm just wondering, in Aziz's triptych, universities, the Democratic Party, labor, as the three zones or orders for, I'm just wondering where the middle of the country is, it, it, where the non, where non-urban, non-university bound, non-democratic party bound. What, did you just write it off? Is pers- Evangelical No, churches. I think that, I think that is precisely the problem, you know, which is that if we really think about the powerful institutions that are connected effectively to pushing for not left, but, you know, left of center policies, worldviews, that the existing powerful institutions are really the Democratic Party and universities. And these are I see. really ineffective. These are really ineffective if we're actually interested in creating something like a genuine left majority in the US. And that's why, that's the reason why I was emphasizing union organizing and labor organizing as a third institution that's been there for a century and that has a kind of capacity to reach beyond the, I think, real limitations of the, the party and of the, 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 and the campus. That's, that was just a thought. I guess, I guess what makes me nervous about it is it, it, now that I understand your point, it's really a fallback. Well, this is what we've got because those other two, but yeah. And, but, but what worries me about it is just what Dan said, what's really organizing in the middle of the country is evangelical churches, um, school boards, parent associations, local other kinds of local associations and municipal municipal um, institutions that are galvanizing people around all kinds of issues but also in addition to Fox News and its new to the right pop-ups it's it's what's politicizing them and if we if if we have a conversation in which we say well what the left has to, to work with in those zones, since it's not going to be universities and the Democratic Party is labor, I th- we're still going to miss the boat because we're, we're not working where people are. So I, I agree. It can't only be labor. And so this is one of the reasons why I think that all sorts of other kinds of local institution building is absolutely essential. But I think you're right to note that, you know, here, if we're thinking about the left, the left is working at a pretty profound disadvantage because the right has essentially created very powerful institutional spaces for making sense of the world, for developing political consciousness, for developing accounts of political solidarity. I mean, that's how I see the church. I mean, the church is not just a religious institution. It's an institution where you spend your life and it, it, it helps you develop a particular way of thinking about the world. And the simple fact is that the left doesn't have an alternative that currently exists that is remotely as powerful as that. What we have are incipient institutional spaces and then these three classic spaces, uh, spaces, excuse me. Now, I do think that there's a strength that left of center activists have that's sort of de-emphasized here, which is just actual majority support, large scale majority support. We're gonna get into the CRT stuff, I'm sure, but you know, these anti-CRT efforts uh, across much of the country don't actually have majority support. But the problem is 
moving what amounts to a public opinion at the general level that is shifting leftward into something that is actionable policy through institutional power. And it's that missing institutional power that's the big problem. I, I mean, I think we're missing one mediating element here, too. So if, if, we, if we're talking about the Democratic Party, the university and the labor movement, there's also the, the entire kind of progressive nonprofit sector. And if you think about the right and you think about organizations like ALEC or the, the Koch Brothers Network or even the Chamber of Commerce, um, which is a traditionally right-wing organization, there's nothing comparable on the left. So even the labor movement, as we think about rebuilding it from the bottom up, I mean, that's what's exciting about the labor movement, that it's a space of renewed organizing and insurgency. Um, it's not exciting at the level of its national federations and the way they operate politically or coordinate politically. Uh, an insurgent labor movement that was like the, the, the CIO PAC of 1936 would be very, very different, right, if it is something like that existed now. And maybe that's the thing to think about when you think about scaling up labor, labor organizing, you know, that, that in addition to making legislative changes that are more favorable to organizing, also thinking about what it means to really politicize the labor movement around this democracy agenda. But in addition to that, the progressive nonprofit arena does not really play a super constructive role, I think, in producing a broader vision of what it would mean to shift the country toward a much more sort of socially robust vision of citizenship. You know, and I think this is where we, we again find ourselves foundering in the same way as we founder within the Democratic Party, divided against itself. You know, we founder within a kind of university and nonprofit sector that is in some ways quite um, attached to certain versions of education polarization, um, is, is, has learned to use unfortunately, um, arguments against racial disparity to narrow the horizons of a kind of a broader re redistributive agenda. Um, and, and so, and, and yet they are also a kind, of, a kind of terrain that we sort of are dependent upon, right? So we're dependent upon the nonprofit sector, we're dependent upon the university, we're dependent upon the Democratic Party, but they're all of these terribly ambivalent vehicles. And I can see that in that way, why you would want to sort of imagine the labor movement, the least robust, the, the one that needs the most rebuilding, because it's aspirational. But what, what, what might it mean to actually think about a kind of a different sort of networked politics among left organizers that really was about trying to develop you know, a more broadly solidaristic vision that was more um, more tactical around thinking about model legislation, that was um, about trying to build um, connections into the parts of the country where it may be possible to, um, to, to support nascent efforts that could begin to maybe cannibalize the, the base of the Republican Party that should be the base of the Democratic Party, or to activate non-voters, which we're always saying is central to anything that would, would, would come of uh, any kind of electoral politics, because there's nothing that's going to come of electoral politics unless we achieve the kind of landslide elections that we were looking at in the 1930s, right? 
there's nothing that can come of electoral politics at this moment. It's not going to be fixed by by the by the work of um, of kind of technical uh, legislative fixes. It's going to be fixed by the ability to really change the the nature of the electorate if electoral politics is even a viable route. So, so there's no disconnecting the electoral politic from the movement politics, obviously, in terms of the kind of ambitious agenda that we're all trying to sort of imagine here. But I, but I do wonder about that other mediating element, you know, um, of, of a kind of, um, you know, we could call it an elite, a kind of elite network or an organizing network or something that is, that is that is really trying to think through on a you could call it a, you used to call it a party I guess <laughs> um, a party politics of a different kind and maybe that's again where some of the the exciting things are happening with something like the DSA but it's still very small very pocketed um, so anyway I just wanted to mention that because I thought it it wasn't addressed in the sort of map we were drawing yet yeah Nikhil in terms of what you just said about the the so-called nonprofit industrial complex to to take the conversation in yet an, another spicy direction is part of what's happening right now that we're is that we're caught in some sort of bad dialectic between racial liberalism and and right-wing reaction or is that letting the right off the hook too too easily i think both parties i i think what wendy said earlier that the the, the rights racial project of the last 40 years is bearing fruit again. I think it's continually borne fruit in certain ways, right? I think it bore fruit for Reagan. Clinton had to co-opt it or neutralize it. Um, I think George Bush pushed it into the outer world. I mean, the, 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 if you read about the early, in the early years of the war on terror, I mean, the racism dripping from it was so profound, even though they kind of, you know, sort of, again, I think sort of scaled it back a little bit rhetorically at a certain point to adapt to um, the kind of old sort of more Cold War framing. And of course, Trump just just sent it, you know, sent the sort of the, the, the rhetoric going sort of red, you know, as red as could be. But I think both parties actually understand something about the opportunistic politicization of racial issues. You know, and I don't want to say it's the same, it's identical, but I think both parties understand how to use race as a wedge issue. And and I think that creates dilemmas sometimes for, for us in terms of how we think about what we're trying to accomplish. You know, and I think if you look at the at the victory in Virginia of Youngkin, and I, I think this may be something I've I've always thought this is something we'll actually see more of, that the Republican Party will try to return a little bit to the more uh, kind of acidic nationalist, uh, anti-racist framing that sort of, it goes a little more sotto voce with the sort of the, the explicit racism, because I don't think the explicit racism works that well. And I think that if you can really show that someone is uh, arguing in a white supremacist vein these days, it, it is politically a liability, and I think racial justice has a huge constituency. So the fight is over who is who is who is operating the in, in terms of racial justice, not not who is the most racist. So so I think that makes it more complicated for for those on the left or maybe in the progressive arena who emphasize racial disparity um, as the problem, but sometimes in a way that so narrows the issue 
that it works against, as I said before, a more uh, solidaristic framing of, of what is at stake. Like it's not just about the fact that specialized schools in New York City have small percentages of Black and Latino students. It's about the lack of access to high quality education for everyone in the city, which is essentially what Eric Adams is coming in and saying now. Eric Adams is really running on that more, I think, conservative, what we would think of as a more conservative agenda. I mean, Adolf Reed is, is I think, the, the, the bellwether for this argument in ways that is both helpful and problematic. But what he calls disparitarianism, you know, the narrowing of every social justice question into a, into a question of disparity, who, who is disparately impacted by this, um, r- rather than understanding how disparity itself, where it exists, is broadly damaging of a kind of social good or a public good. I think that's a much stronger way to proceed if we're going to sort of maintain a more robust anti-racism. I think Nikhil is right that the Republican Party has actually grown quite savvy about how to mobilize through racism on immigration policy, foreign policy, note that it suddenly became very concerned about Afghan civilians during Biden's withdrawal, not only American troops, at the same time knows that it must expand its base and is expanding its base to include modestly to extremely socially conservative Black and Latinx voters. And it's doing that quite successfully, as we've seen in the last couple of election rounds. It will continue to do that. And I think while I agree with Nikhil that the the DNC is also <laughs> attempts to be tactical about using and mobilizing race, it tends to be more ham-handed in, in the ways that it does it. And, uh, you know, all I have to do is say Kamala Harris to make that point. And, you know, on the one hand, it tends to be kind of blunt and vulgar about um, featuring racial justice discourse in its moves. And on the other hand, it tends to deliver relatively little. The local episode, I think, that's not the Democratic Party, but just a local episode of, of that ham-handedness at the progressive level was the fiasco of the San Francisco school board that I think made some national news during the height of the pandemic while parents were out of their minds about ineffective and inefficient plans for getting kids back into schools and um, safely and viably, uh, the school board instead took it upon itself to rename 44 schools, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, et cetera, uh, with more acceptable names. And that school board got itself dumped. I mean, that, that turned into the issue of the year, the stupid school board that was busy renaming schools instead of figuring out how to handle pandemic pandemic reopenings and address the tremendous differences across kind of scandalously unequal uh, Bay Area. I won't even use the word disparity, but the tremendous differences in education. 
And, you know, that is not to be placed at the feet of the Democratic Party, but it's certainly to be placed at the feet of a certain kind of progressive politics that uh, backfires in every possible way, delivers nothing to people in need and who are ready to be politically activated or mobilized, and instead sends them flying to the center or to the right. And we just have to get smarter about that. Yeah, I mean, so I, I agree with everything that both Wendy and Akil have said. I also think that one of the things that's going on right now is that, you know, we'll see how long this lasts. These things are shifting, but the mainstream of the Democratic Party and the Republican Party continue to share a basic story about the country, which is the country is committed at root to a project of inequality that is inherently universal. And so I think there's a way in which, you know, sometimes on the left, you can frame the right as sort of the old segregationist white supremacist right of the South in the the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And that even beyond just, you know, the question of of instrumental politics, like I don't think that that speaks to where a lot of conservatives actually are in terms of their own understanding of the country. Like I think that they actually articulate their own views in these civic nationalist terms. And then you know, essentially two different kinds of variants. I think that the the one that we associate with what amounts to kind of a, a modern day white supremacist politics is to combine that civic nationalism with a very p- particular story, which is that the reason why the, the country is this special inclusive place is because of the particular history of the folks that settled the country. So this is the thought about 1776 and the rejection of the idea of 1619 rather than 1620 as as a critical date. And so then there's this argument that if you have new folks coming in from Asia and Africa and Latin America, then you know perhaps this is going to disrupt a very specific kind of special culture. So that that's one type of argument. But it's also the case that I think Right now, if you just looked at some of these anti-CRT bills, they read in very kind of universalist terms. So, you know, the Tennessee bill, you're not supposed to teach that one race is superior to another. The Texas bill, you're not supposed to teach that slavery is anything but an aberration from the basic principles of equality that have shaped the country from the founding. And I think there's a way in which that can actually speak to a particular kind of, let's say, baseline white voter who takes who takes seriously the question of racial injustice, but is strongly nationalistic, deeply believes in the idea of the American project, and doesn't necessarily see those kinds of provisions as inconsistent with a racial justice claim, and might, if anything, you know, be concerned about whether or not their child is being told that actually the country isn't a just country. And in a way, I mean, this is consistent with white sentiment about the movement for Black lives, where before 2020, support among, you know, among whites for the movement for Black lives was about 30%. It goes up to 50% in the context of the protests, and especially, I think, because of the background context of Trump. And now it's back down to the mid-30s, which is more equivalent to where it had been previously. And so I think the the Republican Party has been better at being able to shape its own civic nationalist account in a way that hits 
hits a broader spectrum, perhaps in this moment of where, you know, white voters are. And by comparison, I think the mainstream Democratic Party is really is really unsure. I mean, I think it's been deeply destabilized by the rise of Trump and by the fact that, you know, a large segment of the voting base is, is African-American, let's say a quarter of the folks that vote Democratic. And so you have this strange back and forth between the idea that, well, Trump speaks to a kind of white supremacy that's constitutive and this thought, well, that the country actually is this is this sort of post-racial civic utopia. And I think that that, that uncertainty and that sort of ping-ponging back and forth is creating various kinds of problems on, on the ground in terms of, you know, where a, a particular kind of median, you know, suburban white voter might be in places that Biden won in 2020, but that, you know, Youngkin, for example, was able to claim in, in 2021. Um, how to solve this? I'm not sure that there's actually a solution here because in the sense that I don't think that there's a white majority that's in fact committed to structural and meaningful racial equality, at least right now is currently constituted. And so to the extent that the Democratic Party is sort of responding to destabilizing events on the ground, trying to think about how to produce a, a coalition you know, that can win in the, the next election, I think you are stuck in this moment where Democrats are probably less effective at mobilizing civic nationalist politics. And then, of course, there's my own position. So, you know, I'm a person of the third world. And I think that this nationalist story about the country fundamentally obscures histories of racial subordination and empire, and that the only genuine way of getting out of this bind is by breaking free from these various kinds of mythologies and investing in a politics that is anti-imperial and committed to socialist practice, but isn't anything like a majority for that. One last thing, I think to the extent that the democratic approach to this has, has been a substantive problem rather than just like a messaging problem. The substantive problem is the absolute evacuation of any account of racial capitalism, where one thing that does, I think, pair some elements of liberal race speak with the conservative race speak is the focus on beliefs, intentions, values, you know, so um, the emphasis on um, psychological discrimination by particular people against others, and then the right just in like reverses the, the, the signifier. So it's actually white people that are facing quote unquote reverse discrimination and that neither element of the conversation actually embeds race in longstanding histories of either capitalism or labor practice or structures of inequality that sort of shape the fact that we have a multiracial uh, working class, for example. But, you know, that's a substantive problem, but it's also a problem that hasn't really been effectively articulated by uh, a, a left base outside of the Democratic Party. I'm Astrid Taylor, and you're listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, a podcast for people who want to deeply understand the world and organize to change it. That's why you should support the show at patreon.com slash the dig. This episode of The Dig, like every episode of The Dig, is produced in partnership with Jacobin Magazine. Jacobin is an incredible publication, and you've probably seen a lot of what they've published online. 
but they also have a really beautiful print magazine. It comes out quarterly and has well over 100 pages packed with illustrations, infographics, and some of the best graphic design in the country. Dig listeners can join 50,000 Jacobin subscribers developing socialist political thought and debate for just $15 a year. $15 gets you an entire year of Jacobin in print and access to the magazine's entire back catalog. If you've never subscribed to Jacobin before, you can access this deal by going to bit.ly slash digjacobin, all lowercase. That's bit.ly slash digjacobin, B-I-T dot L-Y, digjacobin, all lowercase. I want to talk more about the, the so-called culture war. We're, we're likely about to see Roe, Wade, Roe v. Wade struck down, but, but the culture war of the moment, of course, is right-wing anti-critical race theory politics. So first, generally speaking, how does an issue get made into a culture war issue? And what does that do to an issue? And then, more specifically in terms of the past two years or so, am I right that the pace at which right-wing culture war mutates has just accelerated really rapidly since the beginning of the pandemic, breaking from the anti-immigrant, nativist politics that led the way until Trump's last year in office to anti-lockdown and anti-mask politics, then anti-BLM, anti-Antifa politics, and then finally anti-vax, then anti-CRT politics, with with other longstanding issues like anti-trans demagoguery being constant, but maybe never first order concerns. I would tell a slightly longer story. It would not negate the story you've told, but it would start earlier. And it would start with the displacement that we've talked about of the myth of the white Christian single earning patriarchal household being being under threat. And it would also start with a story of neoliberalism in which that household is, and that myth is revived as the promise of a fully deregulated state, a stripped out welfare state, uh, a dismantled set of social provisions, progressive taxation, and so forth, because that family was being restored to its rightful place in, in the myth of that rollout. And I think to see the culture wars as a, a, a more recent invention prevents us from being able to see the extent to which what we now consider polarization or the deep divide attaches to various things as a barnacle attaches to an available rock, CRT, abortion, anti-vaccine, and so forth, but is actually inscripted in a right-wing, authoritarian, neoliberal revolution, starting with Reagan, that has a very sweet face on it. And that sweet face is the face of that image of who America belongs to. And this is maybe where I would have a slight difference with Aziz's picture of everybody being in favor of racial justice. Yes, in favor as long as the primacy 
of that white family is not disturbed. And it was so radically disturbed by the material effects of neoliberalism and globalization, declining incomes, loss of the infrastructural supports for households, um, scandalous speculation in real estate that priced most of those folks out of a housing market forever, loss of decent quality schools out in the hinterlands as well as in urban settings and so forth. The divestment from that uh, family, <laughs> even even the, the concrete dimensions of it, not just the myth, that accompanied the mythologization of it, I think really have to be understood as, as, as seeding and beginning a culture war that also, as we've already talked about, w- was also stirred by an explicitly racist mobilizing strategy of the GOP. <laughs> really? And we can argue about dates a little bit, but but certainly since the 80s. And, you know, some call it dog whistles, some call it more overt, but it's it's been there. So I think our so-called culture war has been building for quite a bit. Now we have ways of naming it, but I'm not sure that means we have either a good origin story or a good diagnosis of what it means now to politicize literally every aspect of our existence. That really makes me ask myself to what degree the specific content of a particular right-wing panic matters now in terms of how it politically functions for the right. Obviously, it matters to trans people, to people suffering from police violence or mass incarceration or undocumented immigrants or people seeking abortions. But in terms of of how it functions for white-wing politics, how given its grounding in this this sort of threatened, mythologized American family that you describe, to what degree is the culture war fixation of the moment less important than the fact that there always is a culture war fixation? And and do you do the rest of you think that it has indeed accelerated over the past the mutations have accelerated in recent years? So I'm not sure. And I actually do think that these different topics serve different functions for conservative politics. So for example, the nativist anti-immigrant sentiment, I think very clearly was connected to uh, an argument about, you know, the problems with globalization. So it's in a way really central to the way that the right has marshaled class politics. So that the argument basically was that what's happening to white workers essentially is that they're facing competition due to globalization from workers from around the world, especially from Latin American workers. And that, you know, this is a problem that has to be addressed. So rather than actually thinking about, you know, the structures of capitalism, you're essentially scapegoating non-white persons as the problem in a way that links together a claim about race and sort of like the essential nature of the country with a critique of globalization. And I think that that kind of proceeds apace because native sentiment continues to be very, very powerful on the right. And so I think that that's, that's doing one thing. I think the anti-CRT push is doing something else, which is it's emphasizing this concern that your children are going to be indoctrinated in schools, that they're going to be told in schools that the values that you have and that the way that you were raised, you know, are false values and that it's a really powerful way of cementing a specific kind of conservative base around what amounts to anti, anti-racial justice politics through an argument about 
the state essentially imposing a worldview on families and disrupting the relate the traditional accounts of meaning that families have constructed. And then it also works hand in hand with the school choice efforts and the general rights attack on, on public schools. So, I mean, there's, there's that. Then the anti-COVID stuff I think is doing something else, which is the, the schooling and, and anti-COVID has been a really powerful way for the right to again sort of make arguments about the problems of government intervention and government intervention into the economy, market practices, ordinary choices, precisely because you can say, well, you know, a lot of parents are in fact suffering in the context of COVID and that there's all sorts of issues with, you know, what these lockdowns have produced and parents want to have their kids back in school. And so contesting COVID policies in the schools is a much better way of contesting broader state interventions than doing so in other spaces that have, you know, almost exclusively the kind of public health framing. It's a really concrete, powerful way of contesting the the state's intervention. So there is a real crisis in the schools. It just has nothing to do with CRT. I mean, schools, teachers have been in crisis, students, parents, bus drivers, custodians, everyone, but there's no coherent politics to talk about that, but it is a site of incredible intention, pain, trauma, anxiety. I just want to say, I, I do think I, we, we we need another hour to pull this apart, but I, I do think schools, K through 20, are a site of struggle today between left and right, because the left has them, and the right knows it. And they want, and many of those in right wing think tanks were really explicit about this. Get in there, get the universities back, get K through 12 back. And I'm not saying this is a grand conspiracy. I think it is, I think it is both intentional from, from the top. And I think it is also a grassroots reaction to the belief that the liberals own the universities and for the most part, own the rest of the education system, and that that is doing what Aziz just described, which is um, filling kids' heads with things that are at odds with what their families believe, and in the case of CRT, making them feel bad about being white people. And I don't think we should just scoff at that. I really think that is what some of the anti-CRT people believe, that their kids are being told to feel bad about themselves as white people. And if we took that seriously and dealt with that, rebutted that, and offered a very different narrative about what teaching about America's racial history is, instead of it being about feeling bad about being a white person, we would simultaneously do what Nikhil and Aziz were talking about earlier, which is challenge that stupid liberal approach to racism, are you or are you not one, with, no, this is the story of, these are the historical forces that have brought us to this past and that need remediation. But I, I, I do think we have to see the schools as a really important politicized site today that is not, you know, it's partly about them failing. It's partly about underpaid workers in them, as you just said, Dan. But it is also about what is being taught in them. And we have, we educators here on this screen have always believed that what is being taught in them really matters. And that's part of why we do the work that we do. And and there's a, there's a 
big fight to be had right there um, that we need to openly acknowledge as a left and and figure out how to win rather than how to react to. Uh, I I agree with that. Um, I I do think though that you know some of this is a, is the old like wrecking crew strategy, right? There's the 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 anti CRT stuff is very very connected to the school privatization stuff, and the the public schools have always been a big prize, right? If we could, I mean it's it's not just winning the public schools against the ideological indoctrination of the left; it's actually destroying the idea that public education is a public good that we should pay for, right? So in that sense, I think the anti-CRT stuff does kind of then, back to what we were talking about before, kind of play both sides, right? So it can sort of say to your white parent, your, you know, panicky sort of, your your child is being taught to hate themselves because they're white. But then it can say to the African-American parent, your child isn't learning how to write or they're not learning math. They're not learning the skills they need to thrive in this society because the schools aren't doing their jobs. You know, and I think that both of those, I think it's a, it's again like a multimodal kind of messaging that's at work here. And I just know this partly from having a, a child in elementary school and a child in high school in New York City and the kinds of conversations parents are having, you know, and there is, I really do think that the CRT thing would not have worked in the way that it did had there not been this really profound sense of the sort of failure of public schooling during the pandemic. And there's tremendous anger about it, frustration about it, tremendous stress that was produced by that, and not a clear person to blame in any of it, you know? And so I think that also is is indicated by some of the ways in which this anti-CRT stuff has also kind of quickly died down again, right? It's sort of, it's not, it's, it's, it's not so apparent that this is going to have legs, kind of going back to what Dan said, you know, is the, it, it doesn't really matter what the given culture war issue is, you know? So, so while I think that it kind of goes back to where we started the conversation between the sort of the ruptural and the continuity, there is continuity in the, in the right-wing counter-revolution, right? That is about uh, restoring the prerogatives of empire, restoring the prerogatives of the white Christian family, uh, restoring a kind of a de facto racial hierarchy, if not a formal one. Uh, I'm talking about Reaganism here, right? Um, restoring the kind of prerogatives of a sort of idea of kind of kind of male initiative in 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 erotic life and sexual life, right? This this sort of idea that this is how we're going to get mourning in America, right? We're going to we're going to wrest all of this back from the the excess of democracy, right? The 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 mire of all of these social movements of the 1960s. So there is a big arc to this counter-revolutionary story that I think Wendy has told so well in so many different parts of her work. Um, but the one thing that I always do come back to that I think we maybe don't always um, think enough about is how has this story changed since the 1980s? You know, how, how has it changed since the 1980s? 
is it really still about the defense of the white Christian family? You know, or is something else kind of, again, sort of weirder at work now in the kind of um, the constitution of American life in this moment? You know, and, I, and, it, and it kind of leads me to just maybe a, a, a last thought on this point, which is that, that part of what we're talking about is a hegemony deficit. We're talking about the collapse of consensus ideologies. Uh, we're talking about the, the way in which after the Cold War, there have been these bids to reestablish some idea of a kind of coherent sense of national belonging, a coherent foreign policy, and a coherent economic project that could reestablish a kind of virtuous circle of growth and employment. And none of those have succeeded. You know, and to me, in, our, in my lifetime, and maybe in all of our lifetimes, the biggest effort was the war on terror. I mean, the war on terror really was an effort to kind of get all of this going again. You know, you would, you would reestablish American primacy. You would create a kind of virtuous circle between kinds of resource extraction and kind of benefits that flowed back into the American polity. You would sort of solve internal, international divisions around race and, and ethnicity and maybe even immigration by having a foreign threat. You know, and the Bush administration was the most civic nationalist administration that in some ways we've seen. I mean, even more so, or certainly as much as Obama was. You know, so what happened to that project? I think the continued failure of that project, you know, and a kind of almost a, a turn to now a more cynical apprehension of that failure, that all we're ever going to do here is kind of um, manage division and dissensus. And we're going to use division and dissensus wherever we can to gain advantages. You know, and I think it is true that both political parties do it. I think it's far more the provenance of the right. Um, I think it goes back to the first question I asked Wendy, which is when you say the white's playing for all the marbles, I ask, what are they actually playing for? You know, they're playing for power, but what is the right's project? What is the what right's vision of its historic project? Its vision of its historic project seems to be kind of how do we dismantle this society, you know, how do we take it apart? How do we, um, you know, and it, it's almost like a, a, a complete fantasy, because if you dismantle it, then there's nothing to govern. So I, I'm always sort of a little bit baffled when I, when I, uh, and, in, and with Trump, it seemed to reach a kind of apogee, right, which is that, that all you have really is the wrecking crew in every place possible gaining certain kinds of personal advantages from their positions. Tax cuts, right-wing judges, so that you can kind of keep this, the culture war going, um, an effort to, in some ways, dampen down the possibilities or any kind of aspirational belief that de the democratic initiative will get us anything better, uh, but not really a positive project in any sense that I can see. So can I... Yeah, can I just add, add something to this it's sort of specifically on the CRT fights, which is, so I, I think that the CRT fights really do show this because again, by all accounts, it seems like just exhaustion with COVID lockdowns in the schools was a much bigger in, uh, driver of support than any of the concerns around um, race and teaching in schools. 
and that actually support for the kind of full-throated anti-CRT position that you're getting from the right and the far right has, you know, it just doesn't have majority support, isn't likely to have majority support. And so to me, the thing that I think is most interesting about it is how it fits within a broader project. And to, and the broader project is basically delegitimizing public schooling and delegitimizing the teacher in particular. So that it's interesting that the story basically up and up through the first decade of the 21st century was that there's something wrong with the teachers themselves. Like the teachers aren't really good that, you know, we need to have these new charter schools because that creates incentives so that you don't have these teachers that have been there tenured for 30 years that are, you know, doing a poor job that are not effectively educating our kids for the market. And then I think one of the things that happened, you know, over the last decade is basically that that kind of position, which is a straightforward sort of market position, really collapsed as a galvanizing way of contesting the schools. And that actually what we saw was a lot of parent support in red states, like in Oklahoma City, behind Kansas, behind teacher strikes, teacher activism, which was articulated precisely in terms of resources, opportunities for the kids. And the thing that's been interesting to me about CRT and COVID together is the way in which it's provided another way of essentially pitting the teacher against the the child and allowing parents to make arguments where they view teachers as the problem. And you see this with the lockdowns, that it's the teachers that don't want to come back to school or with the educational approach, like it's the teachers that are engaged in indoctrination. And so, you know, if there is a long-term effect, I don't think it has to do with almost like epiphenomenal issues around CRT. It has to do with this big contestation over the schools and over, you know, frankly, like the positions of, of teachers within it as you know, significant activists that are part of what would be a a left coalition. And that what the right is doing is this kind of, you know, knife war, guerrilla war approach, where to the extent that the schools are a significant institutional base for what they probably rightly view as left of center politics, what can you do to delegitimize it in a context in which there is no broader hegemonic position? And to the extent that there's any right project, this is an embodiment of that broader project, which is The right, I think, realizes, certainly Mitch McConnell does, that they don't have majority support, are unlikely to have majority support going forward. And so how can you effectively use sort of the existing institutional apparatus to hold on to as much power as possible for your own clientelistic purposes in a context in which you're just losing effectively the long-term war over over where the public is? I think that's a really good point that this is what right-wing ed reform politics looks like unhinged from a dead but once not that long ago very powerful bipartisan ed reform consensus that had attached this currently unhinged right-wing to the neoliberal center-left in a a shared project. Again, I think this would take us another hour, but we, we probably all agree that we need to take the right apart a little bit. There are those on the right with a very clear vision whether it's re-Christianizing the nation or in the alt-right, obviously uh, re-whitening the nation and so forth. But I also agree with Nikhil and Aziz that I, I think 
what we might call the mainstream right, and by this I don't mean the Liz Cheney Republicans, but just the Mitch McConnell right at this point, has no project other than hanging on to power with a shrinking demographic base. And I think we really need to accept that as a certain expression of of what some of us have called as a condition of nihilism, where 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 power for its own sake uh, is a perfectly animating project, and has the added frisson of mocking those who constantly ridicule you. And I think this works from Mitch McConnell on down to the to the, to the most ordinary what I called earlier, kind of wounded white male, where being able to, as it goes, own the libs or simply dismantle their institutions, take their courts away from them, their schools away from them, their Congress away from them, their districts away from them, has its own satisfactions. And I think we need to reckon with this, that that destroying democracy the institutions of bourgeois democracy has its own pleasure when it satisfies both the ambition to hold on to power because you can't hold on to it any other way and take something away from the people who are constantly ridiculing or dissing you in all kinds of ways for uh, everything from uh, your taste to, 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 to your lack of participation in the elite circles. And here, here, I think we really need to go back to something that we paid a lot of attention to very early on in the Trump years, which was um, that dying Davos elite that had not just Davos, but all its tentacles across the finance world, the tech world, the urban, uh, cool cappuccino drinking world. Now everyone drinks them. But in the beginning, the kind of, you know, taste leaders, the, 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 the kids who went to universities and so forth, all of that is is pretty aggravating when you're in middle America and you feel I'm 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 not going for the left behind thesis, but you just you 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 just feel humiliated for 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 your stupidity, your lack of education, your weight, the rest of it. And I think understanding this mainstream right as having only the project of power that it also has as its pleasure the dismantling or the, the 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 disorienting of folks like us is important. Secondly, I think one thing we probably paid a little too not paid enough attention to with critical race theory is precisely the naming. You know, I think when it first burst on the scene, we all laughed. How did how did critical race theory? We know where it came from. You know what what form of of critical legal studies, it, you know, it, 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 it emanated from how did it become this everyday word in America? And did people really even know what it was and what it stood for and so forth? But I think it's really important to see the extent to which the words critical and theory do their own work in discrediting whatever it is that serious curriculums and pedagogues were trying to do in telling a decent, modestly true story of American history. It discredited it because it was critical and it was theoretical, and it had nothing to do with what is really true or really American. And I, I think we need to pay attention to that kind of thing as it operates in the culture wars. 
and the ways in which we, again, as I said at the very beginning of our time together, tend to take the bait rather than sit back from it and figure out what we're being baited with and how to change the conversation, radically change the conversation so that it remains legible, but so that we haven't swept in to take that bait and start arguing and defending critical race theory. Um, and instead, just let it go, let it let it fall to the side and talk about what our, as, as my colleagues have said, what our schools really need, what where the racial injustice really is in the current organization of education, how charter schools failed, how that race to privatize turned into a, a, a an absolute disaster, how privatization and at the university level also turned into a giant ripoff for the proprietaries um, who just drained federal funds into their um, coffers while spitting students out who learned precisely nothing. And, you know, that, that I think is a really different kind of approach to something like the critical race theory dust up than the pro and con defending it, dismantling it, um, that has happened between left and right. I think that's a really important point, Wendy. And the guy who invented the CRT panic, there is one architect of it. I don't remember his name, but he said... Chris Rufo. Thank you. Yeah, that, that it has nothing to do with the academic field of CRT, of course, but that those words, critical race and theory, you know, he said, wow, those three words really do all the work we need them to do. A few minutes back, Nikhil, you nudged me in the direction of my last question, which is about U.S. foreign policy and the crises in the global geopolitical order and how those relate to the crisis and crises we've we've been discussing at home. Because we, we obviously can't entirely confine this conversation about the metropole of the global empire entirely within U.S. domestic politics, though we mostly have uh, my fault. Well, while the war on terror, the war on terror is continuing, of course, but it's moved way into the background of U.S. politics since the fall of ISIS's caliphate, though the media and political fear over Biden's withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan was one brief, if extremely loud, exception to that. What's on the public agenda now is the new Cold War with China. And I think in past episodes of this podcast, we've discussed a lot how the Cold War helped establish the New Deal order at home, how how the Cold War's end intersected on the domestic front with the economic and political crises of the New Deal order that gave way to neoliberalism, and then and then finally how the war on terror was an effort to create provisional resolutions to crises at both home and abroad. But I want to close by asking, what's happening now? Is is the new Cold War with China either either intentionally or subconsciously or just functionally? among many other things, this quixotic attempt to recreate the Cold War and then War on Terror's bipartisan consensus that was underpinned by a shared imperial project and an identity? And does it have any chance of succeeding this time? Another one of those questions that we could take an hour, I think, parsing and trying to figure out the answer to. And I don't know if I know the answer, but I do think that... um, What's happening with China is more substantive than than just something that's kind of episodic or that is um, just about trying to create some kind of thin ideological project for uh, kind of a new impetus in foreign policy. I, I think that there's a recognition that the project that 
the project for a new American century failed, essentially. Um, and just as we're talking about a hegemony deficit or hegemonic disorganization in the domestic realm, it, it, we are also talking about that in the international realm. And um, that's grown more pronounced. And I think alongside that disorganization, uh, China's emergence and assertion has grown more resonant. China will become the world's biggest economy. It was supposed to be, I think, in 2030 or something, but it, it may be beyond that, you know, and it, it's not going to be richer than the United States, but larger in terms of the kind of economic activity. Uh, China obviously um, operates with significant autonomy from any kind of uh, so-called liberal international order, um, not just in terms of its its own policy, but increasingly in terms of the infrastructures it's developing from the Belt and Road to the, the, the development bank to the, I think, increasing emphasis on thinking about uh, China-centered capital markets that are independent from Western capital markets to, of course, the way in which China thinks about technology um, and, and its own technological development. These are really major um, challenges, I think, to the idea of a, um, a, an international order that's really centered on the United States or on the West and I think that that is producing tremendous fear and anxiety. Um, and I think that the question now that's being asked, uh, and I do see this happening, is really um, where are the red lines around China, which I think is the wrong question. I mean, I think the question really should be how do we accommodate and constructively work with China within a world system that is becoming multipolar in its and 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 uh, that is no longer centering on a kind of um, Western uh, imperial legacy project, right, that we've really been trying to defend um, really since World War II. um, And that now I think is not really defensible. Um, And certainly China is not going to go along with it. And nor is the nor is Russia, uh, nor is much of Asia. Um, I think when the Trans-Pacific Partnership, you know, uh, initiative of Obama kind of fell, that ship sailed. So I don't really know what what comes next, but I don't see a very strong, robust, constructive conversation about, about what to do next with China. I think there are interesting people in the Biden administration who are more constructive and who believe that there has to be a cooperative, at some level, a strong cooperative trajectory in the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, but I do think the future of the world depends on it. And the future of any political initiatives that we imagine in this country depend on it. So one of the things that we sort of hinted around but didn't talk about directly was you know, just the extent to which this feels like a moment consumed by history, like history speak, history talk, domestically, internationally. And I think one of the reasons is that's in part a function of this moment of, you know, what uh, George Shulman, wonderful theorist, calls interregnum, like the, the sense that, that a past order is broken down and yet we don't really have an idea of what's going to come next. And it's produced a sentiment 
I think within the mainstream of the Democratic Party and certainly in the Republican Party, just like deep nostalgia, like nostalgia for some previous moment when politics made sense. Now, for the right, it's a kind of, this is all the stuff that Wendy was talking about. It's like nostalgia for a very specific kind of perhaps like white Christian male-led family organized in very specific terms around what it means to be American, who counts as an American. For many in the Democratic Party, I think it's that it's that Cold War li- liberal order that's been the organizing sort of central lodestar of the party for, for decades. And so, you know, I don't see the aggressiveness towards China as in a way even necessarily about China itself, because there are these competing views within the Biden administration about even whether or not having a new Cold War with China is a good idea, if the U.S. should use soft power versus harsher forms of power. What I see it as more about is that I think the Democrats in particular, Republicans too, but like this is is more of an open possibility within the Democratic Party's foreign policy, they're just loathe to give up the idea of American global exceptionalism and leadership and a unipolar world in which the U.S. enjoys a kind of permanent interventionist right to assert police power that can step inside and outside of the rules and sets the terms. And the problem is, to the extent that the U.S. had a model that was tied to capitalist market relations and what uh, what Wendy was calling the bourgeois institutions of representative government, that that model has just failed. Like it's totally collapsed. And so the U.S. is in this position where it wants, or some significant segment of the foreign policy elite, where it wants to maintain a kind of fiction that it has the model that can be broadly disseminated, despite the fact that domestically what we're dealing with is potential authoritarian takeover, and that it's um, it can recreate a world in which the U.S. enjoys unipolar power. And what you don't have is a proper reckoning. Like, it, it might be the case you have some folks who are like, well, maybe we should have a less antagonistic relationship with China. But what you don't have is a proper reckoning with the idea that, you know, maybe unipolarity was neither good for the U.S. nor the world. And that actually multipolar systems of global um, governance organized through multilateral institutions, genuine commitments to self-determination, a genuine public commons, for example, by making accessible things like, you know, the vaccine that the failure to do so we're dealing with in the present, that that just might be a better way to generate global prosperity and collective peace. And unless the kind of desire to somehow put the genie back in the bottle and figure out ways to assert unipolarity is substantially done away with confronted, I think we're going to be in this particular position where maybe China's the enemy, maybe you know, there's a, a new space where you can pursue a kind of war on terror. You're, you're constantly looking for enemies of old that can reanimate a project that's that's no longer alive, essentially. I agree completely with what Nikhil and Aziz just said and would only add two notes. One, I think the kinds of interregnums that we're in right now are part of why we are disoriented between the global and the national, but I think also an interregnum between representative democracy and whatever its successor regimes are. To put it boldly, I think we have to acknowledge that representative democracy is dying. Um, It's being assaulted not only from the right, but from the left and uh, other kinds of aspirations for, for 
governing ourselves, both reactionary and progressive, are emerging in its place. And I also think it's distinctly unsuited to a post-national order of things. So there we are. On China, I just want to say, as an addition to, to what Nikhil and Aziz have already said, that, of course, the complicating feature of the so-called new Cold War is financialization. And again, one name will suffice, BlackRock. Um, the extent to which uh, the, the, the financial world believed that we might plunge into a crisis much worse than 2008 just a few months ago because of housing speculation in China tied to the world's largest investment firm, BlackRock, uh, should not be underestimated. Just because we got away with it um, or got away from the crisis a few months ago does not mean it's resolved. It can return. And financialization vastly complicates the political relations that a new Cold War would instigate. So that's just a, a, a an addition to what uh, Nikhil and Aziz have already said. But I think China represents today the, the limits to exporting democracy that were the fantasy of um, that period of the war on terror that uh, Nikhil depicted half an hour ago, but also represents something that indicates a world coming into being that is neither multipolar nor nor unipolar um, because it's so integrated financially and at the level, of course, of production and supply chains. Um, and that means we, we, we have to stretch our brains, allow for the disorientation that our historical understandings of the Westphalian and post-Westphalian period allowed us and instead move into imagining a different kind of global order, both the most dark and dystopian version of it, and of course, the left's imagination of one that is not dystopian, but transformative, sustainable, just, etc. Wendy, this nostalgia for a fantastic idea about America's place in the world reminds me a lot of that nostalgia for a certain vision of the family that we've returned to a few times. Certainly nostalgia left and right is a is an important problem today um and i think you know there are parts of the left that are doing better with this where they're really opening to the possibility of new forms new new forms of of collective governing new forms of 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 multiple scales of governing from transnational to local new forms of labor new forms of family new forms of global organization. But there are other places where that nostalgia, and again, I want to say it's not just on the right, it's in parts of the center, and certainly uh, the liberal left for family, for state, for nation, for, for white supremacy, and so forth, are very present. And you know, at the risk of being tendentious, I think we saw a little of it from time to time in the Bernie campaign, and I'm not faulting him for it, but I certainly think we saw a bit of the kind of labor nationalism, America first stuff, and even the constant emphasis on working families, working families, working families, that that maybe um, we need to, while affirming everything that the Bernie campaign was and everything that it opened in the way of being able to think about socialism, socialist democracy, and so forth, also we need to be able to think about its limitations in imagining a new world. 
Can I just make a sort of hopeful note on this, which is, you know, I do think it's also worthwhile to, to emphasize that the focus on history, you know, isn't only negative, um, that there's a way in which, you know, for me, it's been one of the most exciting parts of politics over the last five years, which is the recognition that we're no longer at the end of history and that there's actually something that might come after um, you know, the, the very particular brand of American Cold War style liberal capitalism, you know, it's, it's produced an intense nostalgia in the center and the right that we're grappling with. It's produced these fights over how to think of the American past as the American past marked by, you know, these constitutive flaws or regardless, should we just like embrace various myths? Like, so all of this is out there. But at the same time, the other thing that's that's clearly present is a real energy and thirst among especially younger activists to, to revisit the past as a site of potential solidarity in the present, to restitch a left historical imagination that had been fundamentally broken by the Cold War years, to make connections between the present and what, you know, the socialist feminist Crystal Eastman or Eugene V. Debs or Du Bois or, you know, Fred Hampton might have thought in other earlier historical moments. And then to think about to what extent were paths not taken actually relevant for the present. And so that's um, that's a clear part of the intellectual environment right now that has been a site, I think, of real kind of vibrancy and energy that's um, that's worth noting. that you know, history talk need not just be nostalgic. It can actually be its own kind of antidote, but that requires an actual accounting with the past, uh, which to date the country continues to avoid, and, um, you know, a straightforward grappling with like the structural impediments to the kind of change we might want. Aziz Rana, Nikhil Paul Singh, and Wendy Brown, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, and thank you for bringing together this wonderful group of people to talk with. It's been an enormous pleasure. Bye, see you. Aziz Rana is a law professor at Cornell and the author of the book, The Two Faces of American Freedom. His current book manuscript explores the modern rise of constitutional veneration in the 20th century. Nikhil Paul Singh is professor of social and cultural analysis and history at NYU and faculty director of NYU's prison education program. His most recent book is Race in America's Long War. Wendy Brown is a professor in the School of Social Science at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Princeton. Her most recent book is In the Ruins of Neoliberalism, The Rise of Anti-Democratic Politics in the West. She has just finished Knowledge and Politics in Nihilistic Times, Thinking with Max Faber, which should be out in about a year. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, a society that has conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the powers of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. 
Our communications coordinators are Tamuz Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at thedigradio and find us wherever you get podcasts. And please subscribe. If it is on iTunes or whatever such platform, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really, truly does that is you spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us and do find us at patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. 